We've just had a mental health awareness week. Was that a good idea? It sounds like a rhetorical question. It may or may not be. Not so long ago, a front-page story in New Zealand Doctor opined that although one in four people experience mental distress in New Zealand every year, mental health services can't solve a mental health crisis. Poor mental health well-being is increasing. Police responses to mental health crises have increased by 60% over the past five years. A slightly out-of-date figure now. With this trend predicted to continue, Māori and Pacifica people are especially disadvantaged, as are the young, with gaps in primary mental health options. One in eight people globally now live with a mental health problem of some sort, says the WHO. And from Statistics Canada, actually, this just this past week, for example, the percentage of Canadians over the age of 15 with a generalised anxiety disorder has doubled over a decade. The number of people reporting a major depressive episode in the past year, past year jumped by a third. The largest increases in women aged 15 to 24. Dr Lucy Folks is a psychologist who researches mental health and social development in adolescents. She's a research fellow at both Oxford University and the Anna Freud National Centre for Children and Families in the UK. And she lectures at University College London. Hi, Lucy. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You say therapy speak and over-psychologising, and I think we know what that means, uh, can do more harm than good these days. Can you elucidate, please? Well, I think on the face of it, it seems like a really good thing to talk more about um, mental health problems and to recognise how common these problems are. And I think it has been of benefit to a lot of people. But I've become very interested in the idea that there's been some uh, side effects, some kind of unintended negative consequences to talking about all this. And instinctively, a lot of people probably agree with that point of view. But one obvious problem or and one obvious problem, is that we don't live in a world where everything can be made right. Mental health services seem to be stretched globally. Yes, so I think part of the problem, uh, part of the reason why people have ended up um, using this language themselves, possibly, is because um, they would like to go and get a professional diagnosis or discussion with a professional uh, and they haven't been able to so they've kind of been their hand has been forced and they've had to go and um you know do a lot of googling and figure out for themselves and look on social media um whether they might have anxiety problems or not so i think part of the reason why people have kind of adopted this language themselves is because it's difficult to get access um, to professional help, professional diagnosis. But I also think the longer people have to wait to get help, um, there's a risk that existing problems get, um, you know, exacerbated. And so that that encourages people to use stronger language as well. The more likely you will be to shout louder about what's happening for you to try and get noticed and to get help. But obviously that means um, possibly an inflation of the kind of language that people use. What's an example of that sort of inflation, the sorts of messages we hear that may not be much use or even counterproductive? Well, I think trauma is a good example. So the the definition of what counts as a traumatic event um, 
has has shifted anyway amongst professional circles. So uh, as each decade goes by, people rewrite what officially counts as being a traumatic event. And each time those guidelines get rewritten, um, they become broader and broader. So very originally when someone defined this, uh, they said that it had to be an event uh, at which you uh, believed your own life to be at risk. And then gradually they added it to say, well, actually, if you, you know, if you were a uh, emergency worker, for example, and you saw someone else's life at risk, then you could potentially also have experienced a trauma. And it got wider and wider like that. And now as we've um, encouraged awareness of mental health problems, we've encouraged people to talk about this more and to notice these things in ourselves. That term trauma has become so broad as to essentially describe any sort of difficult or unpleasant event and this is true across you know it's happening with kind of every mental health term and the, the problem with that i think is that it those terms lose some of their value lose some of their weight you know if, if everything's a trauma then how do you convey that something really awful did happen to you i think there are some parties that are keen to sort of criticize particularly young people for using this kind of language and i always try and push back against that because i think um teenagers today are using these this language really um willingly because it, it's actually been the adults in their lives that have encouraged them to use it you know it's adults who've um designed these um charity campaigns and these public health awareness raising campaigns for example i try and always recognize why it's happening um and not blame people but equally try and think about what what might be a what might be the downsides and what might be a more helpful approach lucy a couple of longer questions a long time ago i remember seeing research that looked at the benefit of counseling after 9-11 for survivors and mm. families of the bereaved now that is genuine huge trauma and i don't remember how big the study was or how rigorous it was and it's been difficult to find that again actually but the conclusion was basically that most people fared better recovering on their own without therapy which almost sounds mm. irresponsible to mention but i wonder if you can mm -hmm. see sense in what the researchers concluded then no, I think it's responsible to mention it because if someone has an idea and tries something and it doesn't work, then we definitely do need to talk about it. It's just as important when we find out something doesn't work. Um, what you're referring to is something called critical incident stress debriefing, which was uh, someone's perfectly legitimate idea that maybe instead of waiting weeks for someone to come and present with symptoms or months of PTSD, if you go in and get people straight away after they've experience something obviously incredibly difficult um, and try and talk to them about the potential symptoms of trauma and what they can do about it right then, then that might be might be useful. And that's a perfectly um, legitimate, understandable hypothesis. But yeah, what they found uh, was that people actually um, were less likely to have symptoms of trauma uh, if they, you know, in I can't remember the follow-up time, but in, in a couple of months, maybe a month or two, um, they were less likely to have symptoms of PTSD if they hadn't had this intervention. Um, and so it's one possible explanation of that is that, um, well, some people experience, uh, you know, a potentially traumatic event, but it doesn't then affect them in a traumatic way. Not everyone um, responds in the same way psychologically. Um, 
so that's one possibility is that some people just didn't need it. Um, and the other possibility is in parallel with that, you're essentially encouraging people to be hypervigilant to potential signs in your body or ways of thinking that could actually then be um, self-fulfilling. And I'm very interested in that idea more generally. But so I think that's why broadly that idea has been um, discouraged now. But I, so I, I think it is absolutely important that we talk about you know, what we try and, and what doesn't work sometimes. I also remember research in Scientific American, and I, I just looked it up again, actually, and found it, that said although PTSD was prevalent and awful post 9-11, most people didn't suffer from it. And the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress in the U.S. said a version of what you're saying, uh, I think, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't project the likelihood of trauma reactions because it implies people just don't have the resources to deal with bad events in life, which isn't so. So you would agree that that's a problem in society now? Well, it's interesting because that is kind of what's happening across the board now in society with this, um, you know, well-intended efforts to raise awareness about mental health problems and make people aware how common they are, you know, all these ideas to reduce stigma. I'm interested in the possibility that that's potentially sending the message to everyone, especially teenagers, that they're kind of likely to be having a mental health problem at any one time, especially all this narrative about, you know, the post-COVID of this sort of lost generation or a generation in crisis. So potentially all these messages are telling young people in particular that they are uh, vulnerable. Um, And that's potentially unhelpful in terms of how they think about themselves and how they approach things. Uh, So yeah, very well-intended message. Um, but if they're repeatedly receiving it from all angles, it could end up making them feel um, unnecessarily fragile and vulnerable, I think. This possible loss of robustness in society, this is a tricky area because, of course, we don't want to deny there's hate speech abroad and racism and misogyny and the sorts of bullying in schools and workplaces that is harmful and is scarring and should be shut down. But because the climate of this is so much discussed you think we are in danger in even mild examples of it. Hence, I suppose, terms like the snowflake generation and so on. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a good example of when you... um, The more we talk about this, the more difficult it is to actually recognise those very legitimate cases where these awful things are happening, everything you just described. The trouble is that the meaning of those experiences kind of gets lost once everyone adopts this language that's what i'm um that's what i'm concerned about that we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about when we use this language so that we can really hear the people that um that really need it but i yeah i'm always i don't buy into the idea of calling young people snowflakes this is kind of a mass cultural societal phenomenon that they are just witnessing and observing and repeating i don't i don't think it's anyone's fault that it's happening can you tell us about recent studies in schools for example yes i'm very interested in what schools are trying to do to um reduce rates of mental health problems so it's absolutely true that teenagers today are more likely to um report uh, mental health problems. Uh, we don't really know why that is. There's lots of reasons why it might uh, might legitimately be getting worse, that this might be a genuine rise. Um, there's also possible that they are just um, 
more likely to report symptoms that previous generations kept to themselves. Or it's also possible that they are sort of misreporting milder symptoms uh, as sort of symptomatic of a disorder. Either whatever is causing it, rates are rising and schools are very keen to do something about it. And certainly in the UK, um, there's expectation from the government that the school that schools will be a, a site of mental health support and intervention. Um, so there's been a lot of enthusiasm in the last five or ten years about what can what can we teach teenagers in schools that will reduce rates of mental health problems and potentially even prevent them from starting in the first place. But now that we're starting to get the evidence in from the studies, I'm increasingly uh, sceptical about whether this idea of teaching young people en masse about these ideas is actually helpful. Um, if it if it helps, it only helps a little bit in terms of reducing rates of anxiety and depression and it tends to not last very long so it might they might improve kind of immediately after having eight weeks of lessons but not six months or a year later but often it doesn't change the dial at all and thirdly there's some um small body of uh evidence that suggests at least some of the time teenagers who have this less these lessons end up reporting that they feel worse and possibly actually feeling worse so I think there's was a lot of enthusiasm about let's go in en masse and teach young people what mental health problems are and teach them some general skills for what they can do about it, particularly uh, mindfulness-based skills or cognitive behavioural therapy-based skills. But the more evidence comes in, the more good quality evidence comes in, I don't think that's going to be the right approach long term. Because we rolled out mindfulness integration here and studies mm. here are said to have shown that emotional regulation, social behavior, academic achievement increase significantly among students who received mindfulness instruction. Although that seems to have been an American low decile school study, but there have been glowing testimonies from teachers. I saw in one school suspensions dropped from 14 to 6 in one year. So... Obviously, there's support for this approach, and people would disagree with what you say about its efficacy. Yeah, there's massive support for it. I think generally when you look at meta-analyses, so when they bring together multiple different studies, good quality studies, you find that on average things improve a little bit, enough to be able to write up in your study that there was a significant effect. But generally the effect sizes are small, so things don't move very much. Uh, and they don't, um, any effects that do happen straight after the intervention generally aren't sustained. Potentially what's happening, the reason why that effect size is so small and why you get such variability from study to study is that mindfulness and other approaches affects different young people in very different ways. So it's possible that there are some young people who are incredibly responsive to learning this idea, but we don't really know who they are. And it means that it's sufficiently varied that actually if you go in and teach a whole class or a whole school, on average, you're not going to get a huge amount of benefit. Obviously, there will be um, example schools where it does work, but there's plenty of example schools uh, where it doesn't. And we're trying to figure out is is that is it good enough? You know, do we, does it help enough people that it's worth doing, even if the average effects are really small? But what I'm really interested in, as well as this potential that at least some of the time 
uh, some people are actually getting worse. So we need to kind of weigh all of that up, figuring out if, you know, if you've got a limited budget and limited time, is this the best way of improving mental health for our schools? Dr. Lucy Folks is with us. You go into schools in the UK, and just as an aside, really, because it's not a representative sample, as it were, but what do young people tend to tell you? Anecdotally, you get an awful lot of eye-rolling when it comes to um, talking about mental health in schools. There's a sense um, that teenagers feel like it's just another, it's another one of those mental health lessons. I think they don't, often if you talk to them, what they want is to have uh, one-to-one, firstly, one-to-one discussions with someone who will really listen to them and recognise what's happening to them. So I think there's much more value in having one-to-one interventions where you can speak um, to an individual adult, individual teenager, rather than trying to teach these things en masse. But teenagers also say that there's lots of other things in their life which are causing the mental health problems. So often this idea of going into schools and teaching mindfulness kind of, or CBT kind of as an endpoint, um, is possibly a little bit late because they're, there are systemic structural things in their lives which are making them massively stressed, like they're being bullied or something's going on at home or they're stressed about exams. So as, uh, there was a young person um, who talked to my colleague recently over here and she was trying to understand, you know, what, what, does, what does he want schools to do that would be useful for his mental health? And he said that it was a sort of ludicrous question because it was the school that was causing him so much stress. So it seemed odd to him that they were now trying to also... Uh, solve the problem as well uh, so I think from the teenagers I've spoken to and from the interview studies where you kind of uh, investigate in depth what they're thinking there's a lot of skepticism a lot of sense that um, what's being tried isn't necessarily relevant or helpful for them. In terms of your own research I thought this was interesting uh, the relationship between telling people they have higher than average blood pressure uh, mm. and the reporting of anxiety? Have I got that right? Um, so it's uh, higher than average blood pressure. And then they gave them a questionnaire that asked um, about some sort of generic high blood pressure type symptoms like fatigue and headaches and possibly also anxiety. And the researchers found that the group of people who had been artificially told that they have heightened blood pressure were more likely to subsequently endorse these items related to high, brush, high blood pressure relative to a group who were artificially told they had low blood pressure. And I'm very interested in this idea because I now want to, with my group in Oxford, trying to set up some studies to investigate if something similar might be happening with mental health problems. So depending on the information that you share about mental health, like what's shared in these campaigns, might that influence what people report about their own feelings? So, for example, if you share the message that anxiety is really common, does that make people more likely to interpret their own experiences as anxiety? If we can demonstrate that in the lab, then it's, you know, in a controlled setting, then it's potentially quite powerful evidence that this is what's happening on a larger scale across society. But I'm right at the beginning of um, setting up that programme of research. Anxiety, of course, is not something to be lightly dismissed, and I'm not saying you're doing that, but because it, it, it can destroy lives along with depression and you know, the less generalised mental illnesses. But do you think anxiety is being milked, to be blunt? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, firstly, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think anxiety disorders and depression 
um, are just as um, devastating and ruinous as what we might consider more severe mental illnesses. I totally agree. Um, I suppose milked implies that there's a sort of conscious deception. And I I suppose it's possible. I mean, for example, um, there's a discussion here about students at university using anxiety as a reason to get extensions for their work, for example. Um, and one university I was talking to recently, they allow their students to have two, essentially um, two self-report examples of anxiety. So they don't need a doctor's note to say that they're anxious to get an extension. But then the third time you would then need to go to your doctor and get medical evidence. So they've set that up to be fair, because obviously sometimes you might be extremely anxious, having an awful lot of difficulties and not be able to get to a doctor in time. But the trouble is, once that message gets out, students know that essentially everyone has two free passes to get um you know, a bit of extra time on an on assignment. So it's obviously, you know, when I was at university, you know, there were always people who will try and take advantage of the system. It was just like food poisoning when it was when I was an undergrad. So I think there's always some people who will take advantage of the system. But the system was set up very reasonably to try and help, you know, the very legitimate cases where um, mental health problems are extremely disruptive. So Possibly, yes, but it's it's very difficult to tell the difference, I guess. I um, suppose I'm getting at the old book title, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, <laughs> which was very popular yeah. in its day. And the question is about needing to go through those periods of anxiety rather than instantly resort to solutions from the outside in order to you know, be able to cope with life, build character, etc., etc., Definitely. I think it's so important. And I absolutely loved that book and its message. Um, in a lot of well-intended um, efforts to help people who have, who are anxious, teenagers and young people who are anxious, has actually accidentally enabled them to avoid things. So, for example, to get an extension on their deadline, um, teachers tell me a lot about young people getting permission to um, not speak in class, to not um, give presentations in front of their peers, to sit exams away from their peers, for example. And in some cases, that absolutely is needed uh, to manage that person's anxiety, particularly in a temporary um, in a temporary manner. But unfortunately, the worst thing you can do in terms of maintaining anxiety in the long run is to um, avoid the thing that makes you anxious. So whenever you have anyone who has ever had uh, therapy for anxiety, a fundamental principle is that you have to face the things that scare you. Often, if you're sufficiently anxious, which you will be to be getting therapy, you might need to have that exposure happen very, very, very gradually with lots of support from a professional. You do it in tiny, tiny steps. But the goal is always that you have to try and do the things that scare you because most of the time when you do that, you learn two things. So you learn that it wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. Um, but secondly, you learn that when it is difficult, you can cope. And they're incredibly powerful messages that you just don't learn when you um, avoid things. And so I'm very concerned lots of people are concerned about the possibility that the desire to help people who are anxious 
might have kind of accidentally enabled this mass avoidance, which then means people aren't using learning these useful lessons. But I mean, it's a balance because, you know, the solution is not to force people who are terrified to to do things that that frighten them. It's got to be done kindly and carefully. Yeah. Understood. Two more things, if you don't mind. I notice I haven't read it, but I notice in Stephen King's new book, Holly, he reframes his heroine's mental problems as an asset. She uses her anxiety and her OCD to solve problems. There is still a lot to be said, and you said this at the start of the interview, really, for opening the window on mental frailties and letting the sun shine in. That can transform lives, yeah? Yes, I think certainly, I mean, there's a reason why people are coming forward and being more open about these things. It's not just about uh, getting professional help, but it's about understanding yourself and yeah, being able to communicate that to other people. Uh, the more people that talk about it, the more, you know, the less people feel alone. I think it's especially important uh, for men, particularly middle-aged men um, who uh, historically have a lot of difficulty talking about, um, you know, their, their emotional life. So I think yeah, there's definitely all sorts of benefits. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think the solution should be to stop talking about all this, but possibly that we just need to pause and recalibrate and think about who is this working for and who is this not working for, I guess. How would you do that? That's the last question. If our mental health awareness approach is proving unproductive in the ways you describe, it's difficult to imagine what kind of societal reset would enable a change. Well, I think there's, um, and I'm not the only person who's said this, I think a few um, academics and psychologists in this space are now saying we should stop the public um, mental health awareness campaigns. Um, they're not useful anymore. You know, people are aware that these problems exist. I mean, it's all, that's problematic in its own way in terms of making people aware of the problem and not matching that with um, accessible services you know we're now making people aware that they have a problem and encouraging them to go to their doctors and the help isn't necessarily there when they get there um so i think that's one um fairly sort of obvious practical thing that we could do we could we could stop the mental health awareness campaigns which on a large scale must be expensive and you know channel that money into better services better one-to-one help um I think something similar could start to happen in schools instead of in terms of moving away from the uh, on mass lessons and thinking a bit more about how we can support uh, individuals who actually need it. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Then in some respects, the cat is out of the bag now, and it's it's difficult to figure how figure out how we do recalibrate. Interesting discussion, and you're obviously getting support uh, for that, not just from colleagues in your line of work but also maybe when you talk to educators am i inferring that correctly yeah i get an awful lot of emails from um teachers um parents mental health professionals um people who work at universities um very concerned about this the counterproductive conversation that's now going on about mental health and the impact it's having um so i mean I'm, i guess i'm existing in a bit of a bubble and that the people who contact me tend to be the ones who agree with what i've already written but i think there's there's an appetite for this and i think you know a lot of people email me and they say you know they're saying it in confidence or they're asking to say it off the record so it's difficult especially in the face of rising mental health problems to say all this um 
but yeah i think i'm i think i'm not the only one who's worried about this good to have the conversation with you thank you very much lucy for giving us your time too thank you for having me